What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Are you spending more time in your basement now that it's your rec room, office, kids' playroom, or home gym? Well, you need to ventilate those spaces to remove stagnant, musty air. For over 20 years, the Easy Breathe ventilation system exchanges dirty, damp air for cleaner, drier, healthier air. Take charge of your indoor air with your own Easy Breathe ventilation system. You can get it installed, or DIY kits are available. Just call 866-822-7328 or visit TakeChargeOfYourAir.com and receive 20% off today. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does all the work for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more. And you can resell on Picasso's marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. Visit Picasso to see thousands of listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there, and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says the sunlight is going into the mountain. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Joe McCormick, and our other host, Lauren Vogelbaum, is not with us in the studio today, but she will be back next time. Yep. So, um, Joe. Yeah? When you are thinking about potential places that you would like to vacation, does the Red Planet ever make the list? Is that a euphemism for Las Vegas? No, that that would that would be like what Sin happens City. on the red planet it's, stays on the red planet. Well, you might be more right than you know. <laughs> <laughs> it might be really hard for stuff to happen on the red planet that gets off the red planet. Give so. the people the air. <laughs> Uh, I'm sorry, we're going to reference the movie Total Recall a lot of times. Yeah, uh, at least Joe will. I will I will attempt to keep a lid on it. No, well, yeah, actually, I'm going to spend this whole podcast trying not to talk exclusively about Total Recall. <laughs> uh, the, the one that takes place on Mars, I don't know what happens in the new one. I mean the old one, the good one. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we wanted to talk about Mars simply because 
there's this big anniversary that happened this year. Some guys went to uh, a, a pretty distant neighborhood called The Moon. Oh, um, I've heard of that. Yeah, the Apollo landing happened 45 years ago. And as part of the celebration for it, uh, NASA published this this little report saying what comes next. And one of the things it really focused on was an attempt to actually send human beings to Mars for the first time. In fact, what they said is the first human being to set foot on Mars is alive today, didn't yeah. they? Yep. And so the first ones who will set foot on Mars are are currently uh, walking around, which suggests that not only are they alive, they're, they're at least a toddler. Past the age of like three. Yeah. I guess. <laughs> what age did you start walking? Oh, I started walking. Nine. Uh, right, right, yeah, I was right around 13 when I started walking. Before that, I was just carried everywhere like a pasha. But uh, yeah, at this point, um, we're talking about, you know, according to NASA, assuming and, and keep in mind that NASA publishes this kind of stuff in part to get support behind its its um, goals, right? Because it's yeah. it's government funded. So it has to get support so that it gets the funding necessary to do the science that we need to do. And um, of course, a lot of people don't like science. Yeah. <laughs> or, they, or they don't, they don't think li- it's important. They like the idea of it, but they don't like paying for it. Right. That, that's what it ultimately comes down to. I'm not going to shy away from it. That's, you know, some people are like, yes, I want us to go to Mars. No, I don't want that to be, you know, any of my responsibility. Uh, and that's an issue, which that's part of what NASA is trying to to um, to address, saying, look, this is what this is a lofty goal and it's a goal worth having. And we'll talk more about why in a little bit. Well, let's uh Take a minute before we get into NASA's new announcement and just look back on the idea of going to Mars. Sure. Because this has been around for a while. Oh, yeah. But obviously, we've never been. Yeah. It only, you know, it wouldn't even take a full year to get there if you timed the trip right. It'd be some several months. (laughs) So it would take probably 18 months total from start to finish, like to get there, land, Wait for the right time to be able to come back. I'm not talking about a round trip. I'm talking about to get there. <laughs> oh, to get there. Okay. Be like, six, what, like six, six to, months? Six yeah. to eight months. Okay. Okay. That's not that bad. <laughs> <laughs> Why haven't we been to Mars yet? And okay. maybe this discussion will help color our, our ideas about how we will get there in the future. Right. I would guess one of the big things has got to be something we mentioned just a second ago. Money. Yeah. The money, cost. Money is a huge one. How how much would it actually cost to get to Mars? Because I'm sure some people have guessed. Okay. So here, here's the thing. We don't know. Obviously, because we don't we, know. Because <laughs> we haven't sent anyone to Mars. We can't say. If we had sent someone to Mars and then said, hey, can you tally up all your receipts and let us know how much it was? It's like, yeah, we stopped for coffee somewhere right between the moon and Mars. And that added, you know, if we added up all the costs, then we could say, okay, this is how much it actually cost us to send someone. But not knowing means we have to make a lot of estimations. Yeah. And those estimations are all over the place. Right. I mean, seriously, all over the place. Yeah. You're about to hear an amazing space. So- Mars One. Yeah. This is a this is a private venture. Well, we talked about it briefly in our episode about going to the moon versus going to Mars. We talked about the Mars One initiative. Uh, we can offer some opinions about Mars One in a bit, but I would say they have offered a somewhat lowball yes. estimate. They have aggressively priced their trip to Mars. Okay, so they say that to set the first of four the first four astronauts of a group of i think it's like 16 ultimately something like that it's it's quite a few that will eventually get there mm-hmm. but the the first four to get to mars 
and set them up, including all the equipment and everything necessary to keep them alive, would cost $6 billion. And every subsequent mission of four more astronauts joining the ones who are already there would be $4 billion. Hmm. That's pretty low when you compare it to, say, the 1989 plan that was proposed by NASA, which uh, did not have a price tag associated with the actual plan. They, okay. they laid out what the plan was. Yeah. And then other people, based on what the plan was, estimated what the cost would be. Mm-hmm. So based upon NASA's plan, and I'll talk about what that was in a little bit too, uh, they cost, they said that that would cost about $450 billion. Pretty, <laughs> pretty big range between $6 billion to $450 billion. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, there are a lot of different reasons why those range of costs are so different. First of all, uh, 1989 technology, very different from current technology. Wait a minute. Was that estimated in 1989 dollars also? Uh, I, yeah, I imagine so. So we'd have to figure in inflation, which I did not do. But uh, it may also be due to either optimism, like blind optimism, if you want to be you yeah. know, really, really kind of hardcore about this. The word might be hype. Yeah, or it may just uh, again when I say aggressive, it may be unrealistic. You yeah. might say that that the Mars One view may be unrealistic, which is all dependent upon your knowledge of everything that's going on and how how the world works. Right. Um. Uh, I don't feel fully qualified to say that at all. Well, I don't feel qualified to say it necessarily, but my gut is that it is unrealistic. Um. Whereas you might say that it was blind pessimism that caused people to say the NASA plan would have cost $450 billion. We'll never know because that plan was never put into action. So we can't really say one way or the other. Sure. But it does sound like it'd be pretty expensive. So there are other plans that fall between these two extremes, uh, like the Mars Direct Initiative, which has said that its plan to send people to Mars and come back, which is important, <laughs> would only cost $30 billion. The reason why I say it's important is that Mars One initiative, uh, that's a one-way ticket. You go to Mars, you're part of a Martian colony, and you may or may not ever have the opportunity to come back to Earth. (laughs) You you go knowing that there's the overwhelming possibility that that's where you spend the rest of your life. Uh, Because that's what the the whole focus of the Mars One initiative is, is to get people on Mars and to create a sustainable colony, uh, not to have a place where people can go explore and then come back to Earth. Uh, that's one way to keep the cost down because you don't have to worry about building a launch system capable of escaping Mars's gravity and taking people back all the way to Earth. Okay, but another thing is if you're talking about a mission that has a colony, so yeah. it it has a crew, it's an ongoing mission and not just like you're sending a probe to do one job, you're going to be talking about potentially unforeseeable ends and unknown costs, right? Sure, yeah. Because, I mean, unless you just say, okay, we're calculating the cost to dump them on the surface and then never spend any more money. Well, yeah. I mean, like, you can uh, can do the math for, all right, here's the bare minimum of stuff we will need to accomplish this, right? This is is the amount of fuel we'll need. This is the amount of food and water and oxygen we'll need. Uh, you know, this is, this is the number of replacement parts we want in case there's something that goes wrong. You can go ahead and factor in all those things and try and come up with a budget, but stuff happens, right? Yeah. Things, things happen that you did not anticipate because that's the way the world works. <laughs> or in this case, that's the way the universe works. Uh, so it means that, you know, you, 
even if you come up with a budget that seems realistic, you can never really be sure until you've actually done the thing. Right. I mean, cost. just like one practical scenario is imagine you, you put the colony down, they're set up, and then a very crucial piece of equipment of theirs breaks and they don't right. have a way to make another one. So you now, and what if their lives depend on this equipment? So now you need, so to, now send you need to send another one to Mars. Keeping in mind that's going to take months and months. Because remember, that six to eight months is all dependent upon where Earth and Mars are in their respective orbits. Right. It could be a lot longer if they're not in the optimal position. Yeah. So also you got to remember that what if uh, what if it comes time for them to launch off of Mars, but that also coincides with a time when Mars has an enormous dust storm, which does happen on that planet. Oh, yeah. Which could extend their need to stay on the planet for perhaps even up to, a uh, you know, almost a year in order for the, the orbits to come into uh, the right uh, optimal position, because that that orbit stuff that's really important you've got to have the right amount of fuel to get to your destination and if it turns out that well we couldn't launch at the at the launch window now there's no way for us to make it back to earth if we were to launch today we have to wait until we're back around to a point where the orbits are ideal for us to do it again that's another you know several months at the very least so it's you know, it's there are a lot of things you have to take into consideration. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it's one of those things where, it, it again, it's impossible to say, of course, until after we actually do it. Of course, the even bigger thing than costs probably is the human risk. Yeah. I mean, there are very serious dangers in going to Mars. Yeah, there's serious dangers just going into space. Yeah. Right? Like we're talking about serious dangers that go that are involved if you're just going into low Earth orbit. And it's hard for me to say just because. That's further than I've ever gone. But uh, <laughs> low Earth orbit is still relatively safe compared to anything that that travels outside of the Earth's gravitational uh, field, which is very much a, a protective layer for us. So you first have all the dangers associated with your average space launch. Those are all still at play. Right. right. You Every, could have a critical failure, all, yeah. all those things. But that, like you said, that could happen anytime yeah. you're leaving the atmosphere. Yeah, that's just your baseline. So that's you already have that. And we've already determined that the risks associated with space launches are uh, are not so great as to prevent us from actually doing them. We've just, and, yeah. and, and again, when we talk about risks, this is also something that comes down to a, a individual choice, too. There are people out there who are willing to take enormous risks if it means the chance to go to Mars. And to them, they may they may look at something that to another person seems far too dangerous to undertake. And they'll say, no, I, I want to do this. So this is this also comes down to individual preference in some respects. But there are some things that are just unavoidable, like cosmic rays. So yeah. Cosmic rays, solar radiation, another one. We here on Earth are are very lucky and in fact, you might say it's not that it's not luck. It's the well, reason why we're here. Yeah. We evolved on Earth. Earth protects us. Yes. Uh, not sentiently necessarily, although no. there are people who say otherwise. Oh, uh, yeah. There, but it has the Earth's atmosphere and its magnetosphere both protect us from radiation. Yeah. Uh, the the atmosphere largely protects us from solar radiation. Um, although also can help protect us from cosmic rays as well. The magnetosphere mainly protects us against cosmic radiation. Uh, cosmic rays are really charged particles, right? They're not, they're not rays in the sense of like a science fiction ray gun. They are these charged particles that can 
really do some Moving pretty very fast. Yeah. And they have a lot of energy in them and they can seriously cause some problems if, say, a person were to encounter them. Now, um, of course, if you were to take a crew of people and put them out of Earth's magnetosphere, say, on the way to Mars, yeah. suddenly they would be exposed. Right. They no longer have the, the beneficial protection of the Earth's uh, magnetosphere, nor the atmosphere, obviously. And so you have to figure out, well, how do we shield them from these these cosmic rays and the solar radiation that they will encounter as they move through the solar system? How do we make sure that they are protected so that they don't suffer uh terrible health effects, either in the short term or in the long term. So how do, how do we prevent that as much as possible? And it mostly means uh, improvements in shielding, although there have been some other suggestions as well. Okay, so I've got another one. Okay. Do you know how much exercise astronauts on the International Space Station have to get? It's how many, it's a lot. It's like it's like more than an hour a day, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Something they like they that. have to do tons of exercise. And yeah. even then, they don't get stronger like you do when you exercise yeah, a lot on Earth. This is this is preventive yeah. uh, therapy. Right. Is what this is? They are trying to slow the onset of the deconditioning that naturally occurs when you live in a microgravity environment. What is that deconditioning? Well, it's muscle loss and it's bone density loss. Yeah. And those things are not nice. They're no. not good for your body. Muscle loss is easier to deal with than bone density loss. Yeah. But neither are great. I mean, it, it means that uh, if you if you read up on astronauts and their experience, especially when they get those that spend a lot of time on the ISS, for example, the International Space Station, uh, you'll hear about them going through lots of physical therapy when they get back in order to help uh, offset any uh, muscle loss or bone density loss that they've had while they're they were on board. Now, with bone density, you're, you're kind of stuck, right? I mean, you you can't really offset that that much. So uh, that's one thing you would have to do is plan for how do you deal with uh, putting this stuff off or, or or counteracting it as much as possible during the duration of the trip. Also keep in mind that Martian gravity is 38% what Earth's gravity is. Oh, so like even once you get there, the problem isn't totally solved. Yeah, it's not as it's not as severe. 38% is still pretty good. You probably wouldn't suffer, well, you certainly wouldn't suffer the same uh, extent of bone loss as you would if you spent the equivalent amount of time in microgravity. But it's still something to, to keep in mind. And, you know, it's a little harder to... Um, figure out how to exercise. I mean, do you do you pack exercise equipment that's uh, three times heavier than what it would be on Earth, so that it would feel the equivalent amount of weight when you lift it? <laughs> yeah, you know, I don't it's, know. you can't really you know, weighing down the spacecraft in order to do that is probably not the best idea. No, because that increases the cost. Again, another thing is, so if you have extended space travel and you do want to give give the astronauts something to help keep them healthy on this trip. What are your options? I mean, there aren't many. Basically, the only thing I can imagine is creating an artificial gravity spacecraft. We've yeah. we've discussed how you could do that, but we've also discussed why that's difficult because the, it would just involve lots and lots more building in space and shipping more and more materials up there. So yeah, the Mars direct approach is uh, you know it's different from saying let's let's make sure the astronauts have X amount of time per day to exercise so that they can counteract this. These effects and when they were actually when they would be traveling from Earth to Mars, they would, according to that approach, be in a rotating spacecraft. It would it would simulate gravity. And then that's how they would avoid muscle loss and bone density loss. Well, that does seem 
ideal for astronaut health. But uh, my question is, that seems yet again like that's going to be massively increasing your costs. And they I were don't talking know how about you offset that specifically using the um the the launch vehicle as a counterweight. And it's so okay. So instead of like a a, a torus or a, a wheel, it would be like a a tethered. Yes. Right. So you'd have a floor inside your your spacecraft. Yeah. And then that would be spinning opposite a counterweight through a tether. Yes. Yes. And then you would you would end up uh, severing that connection once you got to Mars, because really it's it's just acting as a counterweight in the first place. That makes sense. So it, it's an interesting approach. But, you know, again, that's that's just one initiative. That's the one that was the 30 billion dollar approach. Um, that one was proposed by a a person who used to work with NASA and is you know now kind of the the head uh, evangelist for this Mars direct initiative. Um, but we'll talk a little more about that uh, in a bit. Uh, also, the other thing that's dangerous about a trip to Mars, and we're we're just right now we're just talking about the trip to yeah. Mars. We're not talking about how dangerous it will be once you get there. Yeah. Um, the the last bit is uh the actual arrival at Mars. Pretty dangerous because it's hard to land something on Mars, um, largely because Martian atmosphere is very, very thin. Yeah. There's not a lot to it. So uh, using a parachute will only slow you down so much. You would think, oh, it's only you know, it's 38% of the Earth's gravity. How hard could it be? Well, it's pretty, you know, you're traveling at an incredible speed. You have to slow yourself down. Yeah. Uh, and the parachute's not going to slow you down enough to have necessarily a safe landing with astronauts on board. Now, if I recall, I think when they landed the Curiosity rover, it had to have multiple different stages of deceleration in the yep. atmosphere, right? It had, uh, I'm just going off memory, I think it had parachutes and it had retro rockets. That's right. Yeah, it uh first it w- it positioned itself so that the large surface area was facing the the ground which okay, helped so slow for it down a little. maximum resistance. Yeah, it had a uh parachute that helped slow it down a little more and then it used thrusters to uh counteract the the falling and so it could lower itself down easily. And keep in mind all of that was accomplished uh with pre-programming because it was 14 minutes before we knew whether or not it worked. Yeah. So it had been on the ground for 14 minutes before we even knew that it had managed to, to land on Mars safely. Uh, now, of course, with a human manned trip to Mars, that's not an issue. You would actually have people there who could uh, interact with whatever uh, spacecraft they had. So if they needed to make adjustments on the fly, they could. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't have to wait for uh, commands back from Earth to do so. So there's that. But, I mean, we've already managed to do it with an you know a semi-autonomous vehicle. Uh, so that is support for a, a Mars mission saying, well, we've, we've accomplished what most people would say was, I think, freaking crazy <laughs> is an appropriate phrase. We managed to do it already. So that's that's kind of a check in the positive column. Right. Okay, but so once we get the astronauts to the planet, then yeah. everything's pretty easy, right? No, no not no. at all. No. So we, so have a, we yeah, a we thin are thin atmosphere. Thin atmosphere. Right? Not to mention, it, it's not oxygen rich, so you, yeah. you, you can't breathe it anyway. Yeah, it's carbon dioxide rich, which uh, is not good for us. Not at all. You, you get a uh, big, like you were talking about earlier, big dust storms on yep. Mars. So yeah, the, you can have gigantic dust storms that cover the whole planet. Not to mention some of that dust on Mars is now believed to be highly toxic to humans. Yeah. Uh, like uh, you wouldn't want to be, you wouldn't want to get it stuck anywhere in your suit and bring it into the habitat. Yeah. That dust can have a lot of perchlorates in it, which uh, can 
can be very toxic. Um, you know, they were talking about stuff that has chlorine in it. Yeah. Chlorine is a, is a, is toxic to humans. So yeah, anything where you'd be tracking that dust in or anything that could end up being, uh, uh, you know, not completely secure against it could end up creating severe health hazards yeah, for astronauts. Mars is super cold. It'd be kind of yeah. like living in Antarctica. Yeah, sorta. kind of. So it, the, the temperatures on Mars vary depending upon where you are. Kind of like on Earth. Yeah. Uh, the average temperature is about minus 80 Fahrenheit, which is about minus 60 Celsius, which is uh, anyone who has been out on even a mildly cold day would say, wow, that's got to be, you know, that's got to be almost instant death. That's so cold. Uh, that, But again, it varies. So if you're at the equator at noon, Mars might reach a high of about 70 degrees Fahrenheit, 20 degrees Celsius, which, you know, that's nice. It's a nice day. Sure. I would love that. But uh, at the poles, the low is about minus 225 Fahrenheit or minus 153 Celsius. Not a good day. So not, don't go to the poles. Don't go to the poles. Uh, yeah. So anyway, you've got these extreme temperatures that you'd have to deal with uh, in some way. You'd have to figure out how do we make sure that the people who are going to Mars are going to be able to endure this. Another thing is Mars doesn't protect you from space the way Earth does. Mars wants you to die. Yeah. Things like cosmic radiation and solar radiation both can be uh, more severe on the surface of Mars. You don't have the atmosphere really to protect you, not not a strong one, and you don't have a strong magnetic field to protect you. So you need to provide additional layers of protection. You'd either need to dig down under the ground and build underground habitats to shield yourself or have some kind of... In any case, this is going to be greatly adding to the mission costs and the different kind of things you're going to have right. to do. It's you're, going to make it a lot harder. You're either you're either doing some very primitive terraforming in the sense of <laughs> digging a hole, or you have to factor that into your habitat's uh, you know uh, features. Like the actual material has to be good at shielding against cosmic radiation and solar radiation. Yeah. Um, yeah, we already talked about the gravity, so that could also potentially be an issue. And we talked about the soil. So, yeah, as it, as it turns out, getting to Mars and staying on Mars, really some big challenges there. Really not, tough. Not necessarily, you know, uh, insurmountable, but certainly things that you have to keep in mind. Yeah. One of the other things I want to say is, OK, so. Why do we want to go to Mars? I would say that the main reasons are, well, I, I guess maybe two main reasons. One is just purely emotional. It's just the, the emotional experience of exploration. It's something exciting. It's inspiring to it, humans. It's, but It's really something that's fundamental to humans. I mean, we've... You see it in the history of Earth, right? Yeah. Just just exploring the different places on Earth. And then, of course, you just extend that outward. Human curiosity is not bound just to our planet. Yeah. The other thing is, of course, science. To, to do scientific research, planetary science research on Mars, which could potentially tell us a whole lot about all kinds of things. About, you know, could give us insights into... Uh, into how planets are formed, how Mars is different from Earth, what happened to the Martian atmosphere, could give us ideas about astrobiology, mm. you know, all kinds of different things that we could learn from Mars. But unmanned rovers are doing a pretty good job so far sure. doing planetary science on Mars. So I wonder what are the added benefits that having humans on site will provide? Yeah, um, well, I want to add a third thing to your list oh, okay. on top of science and on top of inspiration, which is technology, which is that, you know, sometimes these these challenges to meet these challenges means that we develop new 
technology, new approaches to various problems. Oh, sure. Yeah. Which, I guess I would have lumped that in with inspiration in a weird way and that just that uh, it, it gives us an impetus to, to go further. Right. And it does mean that we can stand to benefit in, in indirect ways to the uh, efforts to get to Mars. I mean, the, the, if you look at a list of inventions that were either uh, created during or, in, or popularized by the space race, there's a lot that end up being really fundamental to the way we uh, rely on technology today. In fact, the development of the transistor in large part has uh, the space race to thank for it because there was a there was a strong incentive <laughs> to continue to develop to miniaturize electronics so that you could create these space capsules that could keep people alive. So so another thing that, you know, another potential benefit down the road to getting to Mars is uh, technology. Well, I'll talk more about the various benefits at the end, too. But anyway, uh, so why would you want to go human versus rover? One thing is that humans can improvise. That's totally true. And I, I remember I wrote about that in a video episode we did a while back about yeah. the future of space exploration. Sh- should it be entirely unmanned? And I think there is a big role for unmanned exploration. Sure. There, there, because there are a lot of places humans just can't, shouldn't go. Right. I mean, it's just too dangerous. Or, or there's things that where you can pair robot and humans together so that the humans can do things that humans are really well suited for and the robots can do the stuff that humans are not really well suited for. Exactly. But the one, I'd say the main thing that I think humans can do that robots can't do is figure out what to do in a situation where you've been presented with unforeseen circumstances. Sure. Uh, I mean, a, a robot can very easily get stuck. Yeah. It just doesn't know how. It doesn't know how to get out of the problem that faces it. And and it may be a long time before someone back on Earth is able to, one, uh, ascertain what the problem actually is, and two, come up with a potential solution, and then three, enact that solution, and then four, evaluate said solution to see if it actually solved the problem. So you're talking about potentially something that could take days, uh, depending upon what the nature of the problem is. Or sometimes it could just completely, uh, uh, you know, close the door on an entire project if the problem is is severe enough for the robot. But humans are really good at recognizing situations and either uh, overcoming them or working their way around them so that it's not a problem in the first place. Right. So one big example in this uh, would go back to something we talked about a minute ago, like so what if you're on Mars mm-hmm. and a very crucial piece of equipment breaks? Yeah. What do you do? Robots so far are just not very good at fixing things. Yeah. Fixing. What? What is it about the concept of fixing? that It's just an inherently human task to mend or repair, to, you know, see how a thing should be and put it back in that state. Right. Or even just jerry-rigging something to do the same function. Yeah, or, or building a replacement. That's also yeah. very human. Hard for a robot to do something like that may be impossible. And when you're on Mars, like we were talking about, you may not even have the option of getting sent a new one. It yeah. might be that it would be a year before it gets there, and if you don't have one by next week, you're going to be dead. Right. Now, there are times when uh, when robots have been able to, quote-unquote, improvise, but that's all due to the direction of the people back on Earth, right? Right. Where something did not work the way it was anticipated, and so uh, we had to, you know, essentially switch to plan B. But that kind of improvisation takes lots of time, 
And in the meantime, you know, the situation can change, uh, whereas humans can do that on the fly. So that's a big one. Mobility, obviously a big difference, you know, depending upon how you've designed the robot, it may be very good at going across certain terrain and terrible go uh, at encountering anything else. Mm -hmm. So humans are really versatile. We can, we can deal with all types of terrain. Uh, the regions that we would probably visit on Mars are somewhat limited in the types of terrain that we would encounter. We wouldn't necessarily be going to the poles. Um, so we're pretty good at, again, adapting to that situation and, and conquering it. So that's another reason why humans would be a good choice. Cause they could, that means that we could do a lot more science in the same amount of time as a robot could. You know, we're able to, adapt. If we see something interesting on our way from point A to point B, we can go out of our way really quickly and, and check it out or even collect samples, that kind of thing, and then continue on our way. That's a lot easier for us than it is for a robot. Um, also, any human human uh, visit to Mars would likely take some time. And this is largely in part because of that that uh, situation we're talking about with the various orbital paths of Earth and Mars. Yeah. Uh, when they are approaching one another, that's when you ideally want to launch from one to get to the other because it'll take the least amount of time. Yeah. Um, if they're if they are moving away from each other, then as you know, as you're traveling, the, your destination is actually moving away from you. So you have to counteract that, which means you have to spend more energy to get there and it's going to take you more time. So any visit to Mars is likely going to take a long time just because in the, in the duration of going from Earth to Mars, the position of the planets change. And by the time you land on Mars, it is no longer ideal for you to turn around and go back to Earth. You have to wait. Right. So any visit to Mars is going to take a long time if you're trying to be really conservative with fuel and all that kind of stuff. That means that you're going to be spending more time on the surface of Mars than your average rover project is meant to. I say of course, meant these to. Rovers usually outlast. Yeah, they what we, they often what exceed predict. projections, and I think part of that is just being conservative with projections, so that way, should the worst happen, it's not as it's not as uh, a big a blow. Like if you have very specific parameters and you get that approved for your project. And then you go beyond it, everyone's happy. If you set very specific parameters and you don't make those, everyone gets upset. So you want to be conservative with what you can achieve and hope that the situation is such that you can continue to operate long after the planned end of the project has come and gone. Um, but with humans, you know, we would be stuck there, essentially, is what, what it really boils down to. And it would mean that we'd be able to do a lot more science in that time. Yeah. Okay, so... Let's say that there is a good benefit to taking humans to Mars, okay. as we've just established that there may very well be. Who's talking about going these days? We've okay. mentioned Mars One. Maybe we should focus on them for a bit. Okay, sure. So Mars One, this is like a, you know, I don't, I want to be fair. I want to be objective. I don't want to be snarky. That being said, Mars One think, makes me think of a circus act. <laughs> it's like if P.T. Barnum were uh, were arranging a trip to Mars. That's that's the implication I get. Maybe I'm just too cynical. It's it's quite possible. But the the premise uh, behind Mars One is is got some showmanship behind it. Yeah, I will say that they're having read a lot of their materials. They sound extremely optimistic. Yeah, in a way that. Slightly confuses me. So, uh, so though, then again, I mean, we're always trying to encourage scientific ventures and sure. optimism on this show. I mean, we don't want to 
throw a wet blanket on anybody no. and say don't try. But I mean, the best thing the best thing we can say here is that even if Mars One does not ultimately succeed in their endeavor, they will at least in some way uh, contribute to our understanding of the difficulty of getting to Mars, right? Sure. So no matter what, we're going to learn something. Okay. Now, what we learn might not be, uh, you know, how to get to Mars. It might be how not to get to Mars. But let's hope that maybe they've got this planned out way better than we can anticipate. Okay. Here's the pitch, though. Yeah, let's bracket all the wet blanket yeah. stuff right now. Try not to be a bummer. Just what are they talking about? The pitch is they want to create a permanent colony on the surface of Mars, meaning that there's no necessary plan to get people back. So anyone who wants to be part of this has to be prepared that this is you know, potentially a one-way ticket. Uh, they have crowdfunded and crowdsourced a lot, so they they're essentially kind of holding auditions to be astronauts that would participate in this, uh, narrowing it down to a certain pool. And then here's where the showman thing comes in. Uh, they want to have essentially a reality television show that has them settle on the final list of astronauts who will be attempting this, um, including alternates, in case one of the top picks is not able to make it. This is where I get weird vibes. Yeah. They also want to have essentially like a reality television experience while the astronauts are in training and preparing for what they would eventually be doing. Um, and that uh, they would raise money through various means like trying to get people to invest, crowdfunding, selling merchandise. And this television series would also be part of the way that they would uh, plan to finance the trip. Keeping in mind, like I said, at the top of the show, their their estimation of the cost is six billion dollars for those first four. Uh, they do plan on doing this in stages. So it's not like they would immediately launch four people into space and say, good luck. Um, the first stage would involve actually doing some demonstration missions to make sure that they could get to Mars safely, uh, that they would be able to set up a communication satellite to help facilitate communication between the colony and back here on Earth. But in general, the plan is to send human beings to Mars by 2024. They would actually land in 2025. Uh, so the year would change over here on Earth between when they launched and when they landed on Mars. And then... Uh, the by 2026, you would have a second group of four joining the first. Uh, before that, you would actually send up several missions where rovers would land on the surface of Mars. You would also send up cargo, including the habitats that people would be living in. The rovers, their responsibility would be to prepare the the landing site, uh, really preparing the habitat site so that astronauts would have a place to kind of check in. You know, after their mm -hmm. long road trip, they have a their own little mo uh, Mars motel to check in. Uh, like Joe was saying, this is the approach where you would the rovers would theoretically dig, okay, uh, and bury these habitats so that the soil would provide the protection against solar radiation and cosmic radiation, so that the uh, the astronauts would have a safe place to stay in between doing science out on the surface or working within the context of the habitats. They would have to grow their own food, um, so there would be they would be bringing plants along with them to uh to grow in one of those habitats the food the the plants they grow would also help provide some of the oxygen they would need although they would have to generate more oxygen by extracting uh possibly water from the soil of mars and then using uh, uh electrolysis to to separate that out into hydrogen and oxygen wow uh, yeah there are a lot of things you have to take into consideration i mean there are a lot of of steps to this i mean a lot of things that have to happen for this to work um so they'd also have to produce, you know, 
not just the water, but the oxygen, the the food, uh, they would end up being there forever, probably. I mean, unless Mars One came up with a a plan for creating a return ticket. See, that's super tricky because not only do you have to have something that can get all the way to Mars, land safely, it then has to be able to launch back off of Mars and come back to Earth. Um, uh, now, some of the other plans involve ways of generating fuel while on Mars, which help get around that because otherwise you just have to carry twice as much fuel. Well, not twice as much, but you get what I mean. You have to carry enough fuel to get to Mars and then you have to have enough left over to get back. So it's really, like you said, really ambitious, really aggressive, really optimistic. And, uh, uh, you know, I don't know what, what people at NASA have to say about this. I don't know what their opinions are of this particular initiative, but based upon the plans I've seen, which are much more, uh, kind of methodical and, um, you know, they, they're looking further ahead than 2025 as the first date to send people to Mars. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to put words in their mouths, but I would imagine that most of them feel like it is a, a very aggressive and very optimistic approach. Some might say, uh, some might go so far as to say unrealistic. That's, that's the way I feel about it. It just seems like based upon what we know of the challenges of getting there and landing and, and making sure people are safe. I mean, we're assuming here that the approach will actually work and that everyone would be alive and, and maintain, uh, living conditions on Mars. It's, I mean, that's a, that's an enormous endeavor. Yeah. So. But they're, they're not the only ones, right? There have been other private proposals. There's actually one from Dennis Tito, right? Yeah. Inspiration Mars Foundation, which, so, uh. Dennis Tito has been to space, right? He was, was yeah. he the first space tourist? Uh, I don't know if he was the first one, but he was among them. I think he was. Let me look it up right here. (laughs) All right. Well, I'll talk about what he was doing while you look that up. So, yeah, he he talked about... Yes, according to Glance at Google results, he was the first space tourist. There we go. He has proposed a manned flyby of Mars, uh, originally set for 2018, because, again, you're talking about when Earth and Mars are are aligned well enough to to do this with the least amount of fuel. Uh, Now it's been adjusted to 2021, which would be the next time that this would work. It would be a 501-day mission for two crew members, a man and a woman, aboard a modified Orion spacecraft. Uh, it would just orbit Mars and then come back. It wouldn't land on the surface of Mars. So 501 days to go all the way out and all the way back. Um, and originally, he had hoped to raise this money through philanthropic efforts to have people donate money to it. Um, I think I think one of the costs they estimated was around two billion. But again, they're not talking about landing on the planet. They're just talking about flying by and coming back. Mm -hmm. Uh, So those costs are largely in the uh, stuff you have to have in the capsule to keep everybody alive and the fuel costs, obviously. Um, But he went to look to Congress to get additional funding. But that's when the government said, "Um, yeah, no, we will let you have access to all the experts that we know endlessly. You can talk your head off to them, but we're not going to sign a check. We're not going to give you any Mm, money. Alas. And and he said that he was not willing to, um, to go ahead with this, uh, to ask for money from more investors until there was an official mission on the books. There there was was like, this is going to happen. This is the date of the launch, et cetera. But on the flip side, 
no one wants to put a mission on the books if it hasn't been funded already. Right. So you're in a catch-22, right? You can't you, – he's not going to ask for – he says, I don't want to ask people for money for something that may not ever happen because no one ever gives me the go-ahead. Meanwhile, they're saying, well, we can't give you the go-ahead until you can prove you can pay for it. So it's it's kind of this this sort of uh, stalemate that we're in right now. Uh, then there's the Boldly Go Institute. <laughs> Obviously. So pay, they put the split infinitive right in the name. Pay, paying tribute to Star Wars. I guess, except, <laughs> no, it wouldn't be split. It's like a severed infinitive yes. with no two. And it obviously wouldn't be Star Wars. It was Star Trek. That was a test. Oh, I didn't even pick up. I'm no, sorry. No, no, that's fine. I'm sure that I, I did that specifically just to tweak listeners. Uh, I do know the difference. My parents wrote books for Star Trek. So um, anyway, this nonprofit has a plan to send a spacecraft in an orbit around Mars. In this case, it would do be another kind of flyby mission, but it would also scoop up some of the dust from Mars's atmosphere and return it to Earth because so far the stuff we have studied from Mars, it's all been rovers that have uh, analyzed the stuff on the surface and then send the data back to us, right? It's not like we've got Martian rocks that have been collected and brought back. We haven't brought anything back. This would be a change to that. So that's kind of cool. Uh, the type of mission would be a sample collection for investigation of Mars, also known as skim because they're skimming the atmosphere. That's cute, but it's skim with a C. Yeah, it is skim with so a C. So it looks kind of like scum or with an I. Or sim. Okay, okay, okay. Private Ventures. Okay. We've talked about them. Yeah. What's the deal with NASA? What are they saying these days? Everybody wants to know. Well, first, let's let's look back at the 1989 plan, the one that supposedly would have cost $450 billion, Right. Not according to NASA itself, right? Well, NASA didn't put a, a budget to it. Right. They were saying this is what the this is what the proposed plan is. They didn't go so far as to say here's how much it would cost. Uh, the space exploration initiative it laid out an incredible plan. Like it kind of makes Mars One seem uh, quaint in comparison. Yeah. Um, so their plan was to build a thousand ton mega ship in orbit at the International Space Station. Thousand ton is in it is capable of carrying a thousand tons of cargo. It's enormous, right? We're yeah, well, like, I mean, we've, talking like we've this, talked about per pound launch costs before, which in the past. Well, were, in this case, they're talking about building it. Well, at but the you'd space still station. have to launch it. Yeah, right? you'd have to. You'd have to launch all the materials, but it has to be. It has to be capable of carrying a thousand tons. It doesn't itself have to weigh a thousand tons. Oh, okay, okay. It would I have get to be now. able to carry. I misunderstood it. you. Yeah, it's the 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 old way of describing ships. Like it's a sixty ton frigate. Well, that would mean it could carry cargo up to 60 tons. Uh, not that it itself weighed 60 tons. Uh, anyway, it would um, it would be this enormous vessel that would take astronauts to Mars. It would land on the surface. Uh, part of that uh, vessel would be able to take off back from the surface of Mars to head back toward Earth. The final part of the plan was using Venus to uh, slingshot around Venus because it would actually be closer to get to Venus at that point than back to Mars slingshot around Venus to get to that final uh, leg back to Earth and then that's land. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that's total Star Trek, right? Uh, Star Trek Four: Voyage Home. Anyway, that was kind of, once once you got people estimating, like, well, based upon the the uh, enormity of this plan, it would cost, you know, $450 billion, whatever. Even if that were just a number pulled out of the sure, air. the money people loved that. Yeah. Well, Congress, Congress's reaction was essentially saying that's way too expensive and we're not going to fund any of it. Uh -huh. So there are some people who have said that this initiative actually caused more harm than good because what it essentially did was tell 
politicians, hey, this is going to be so expensive that you're never going to get the approval for it. And they said, well, we just won't support it at all then. So it makes it harder to sell it in the future because you've already presented like this enormous, this enormous uh, package and they've said, no, we can't, you know, we've already established we're not going to pay for that. Couldn't they just sell this under the guise of starting a war on Mars? <laughs> well, again, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to, to mention it. It's hard to promise things that haven't been developed yet. But it is true that any time we were to, if we were to take that plan, there's so much that we would have had to advance in order to make it possible that there would have been enormous benefits in multiple industries. But it's hard to to say these things that don't yet exist and we cannot anticipate are totally going to be due to this project and therefore it's going to pay for itself. That's that's like it's too nebulous, right? You can't really sell that. Yeah. Okay. So what's the new plan? Much more methodical. Uh, in fact, if you were to read. The, the release that's on NASA's website that's all about traveling to Mars, it really focuses most on asteroids, going to asteroids first. So that's the first step. It is the first step. Uh, part of this would be capturing and moving an asteroid. So actually relocating an asteroid and uh, either an asteroid or part of an asteroid. Some asteroid mining companies have already talked about this, actually. Instead yeah. of just going to an asteroid where we find it in orbit and then coming back with materials, they've talked about finding a real small one, just bringing it straight to Earth to maybe orbit the moon or orbit the Earth. And in fact, this is what NASA proposes, is to bring the asteroid into a lunar orbit, so it orbits the moon. And this would provide a testing ground for a lot of approaches and technologies that would be necessary for us to send people to Mars and have them be safe. So they, in order for us to be able to, one, capture the asteroid and move it, we would need to help develop more... Uh, approaches for things like propulsion. Uh, a big uh, development would be in solar electron propulsion. That's essentially an ion drive. It uses solar energy to convert into electricity to generate ions. Uh, it emits these ions, and that's what creates the thrust. So it's a low-power thrust. It doesn't. It's not like it gives you the sudden zoom. You're not going to be thrust back into your seat, you know, light speed style uh, or, or ludicrous speed style, depending upon your, your <laughs> sci-fi of choice. But it's the kind that can continuously allow you to uh, accelerate in the the wonderful uh, uh, medium of space. And it also is a low-energy propulsion system. It means you wouldn't have to carry as much fuel. Um, you know, you'd have to have enough to do certain maneuvers, and you'd have to have enough to, you know, launch a vehicle into space. But then once you're in space, you wouldn't need tons of fuel to get around. You could use this to... In, in theory, anyway, to get around. So it would require developments in that. It would require developments, you know, like improvements in spacesuit technology, um, uh, as well as the capsule technology, because the environment of lunar orbit is different than just if you're in low Earth orbit. You're getting to the extremes of the magnetosphere. You are uh, more uh, susceptible to things like solar radiation and cosmic radiation. So you have to build that stuff into making this project work. So essentially what they're saying is, we want to go to Mars. The first step to going to Mars is manipulating these asteroids, which could be of huge benefit to us for multiple reasons. And what we learn as we do that will help us get on get the next step, which is to go to Mars. So if we sell this idea of the asteroid first, that's step one. I think that's smart. Yeah, because it, it is very methodical, right? It's, instead of just saying we want to go to Mars and here's what's going to take to get there. It's saying we want to be able to manipulate asteroids. 
This has enormous potential benefits for us in the future, including being able to get at resources that we just can't get here on Earth easily. So that's an easier sell. And then once you have established all that, you say, hey, look at all the stuff we learned. Look at all the th- technology we developed as a, as a result of having this goal. This is stuff we can apply to going to Mars. Then you can sell that idea. So it is interesting that, you know, there's this whole thing about let's go to Mars. And then as you read it, it's all about asteroids. <laughs> there's very little on there about Mars itself because I think NASA has, has, I think they're a little wary of trying to make too big a goal too quickly and, and make it seem like it's, it's, uh, unreachable where they say, no, it's totally reachable, but we have to concentrate on these specific steps so that way we can get to our destination. Well, I think space exploration is kind of like what the mayor of Amity says in the movie Jaws. You know, he says, <laughs> Amity you, means you, friendship. No, no, no. He says, <laughs> you know, you say barracuda, everybody says, huh? What? You say shark. Then you got a panic on your hands. And it's right. I think the same thing is sort of true in space. This asteroid plan to me sounds very smart, very useful. But if you say asteroid, everybody says, huh? What? But you say Mars, then they know what you're talking about. Yeah. The, the public becomes much more susceptible to your pitch. It's interesting. So in one sense, you're saying like, if we say this, if we frame this as this is our, our roadmap to Mars, yeah. you get public. And it, and it actually is yeah, part of the yeah. roadmap. To, I'm, I'm not saying it's like a diversion. Well, I just mean it's interesting because if you present it to the public as this is our roadmap to Mars, the public is, oh, that's really cool. If you present it to the uh, to the government saying, look at this practical use of technology that could benefit us in the future. Oh, and we could also get to Mars. <laughs> yeah. It's like it's it's like you're using the same strategy, but you're framing it in two different ways depending upon your audience. Yeah. Right. Which is kind of interesting. It's it, it's very savvy, actually. Um, anyway, it's going to mean that we're going to see lots of different improvements, not just in technology, but in approaches. Things like how do we develop stuff that is uh, maintainable and repairable? out in space by astronauts because a lot of the stuff that exists right now, you know, international space station, obviously you have to have stuff that's repairable by astronauts because you can't bring that back to earth to fix it. Right. But things like spacesuits haven't really changed that much over the decades. So in order to repair a spacesuit, you generally have to bring it back. Then you have experts who maintain it or, or do repairs or whatever, and then it can be sent back up into space. Obviously for something that's a long term mission, you know, we're talking about maybe uh, if, if you're talking about landing and spending time there and coming back, it might be 910 days. That's, you know, that's a long time to spend out there. You obviously need to have equipment that can be maintained and repaired by people when it needs to be. You know, you can't just say, well, I guess I'll just live with that for two and a half years. Who needs oxygen? You know, obviously you need to have ways of, of addressing that. And it's also true that whatever tech they develop for this kind of stuff will ultimately need to be useful on Mars because the stuff that's useful in space is not necessarily ideally suited for what's going to, what they're going to encounter on Mars, right? So right. what you encounter in microgravity is different than what you encounter in a 38% Earth's gravity environment. So these are a lot of things that uh, they have to address and challenges they have to meet in order for uh, a a NASA trip to Mars to be uh, feasible. So to me, it's really interesting. Like they may even incorporate some 
elements of plans like Mars Direct. It's not like a, a uh, project to send people to Mars independent of NASA. Right. It's more of a proposal saying, here is a way that we could do this that would be uh, that would not be economically unfeasible and would address a lot of the issues that uh, that are that come up as concerns in a trip to Mars. So it may be that uh, the future real plan to go to Mars uh, from NASA incorporates a lot of those elements. Totally. We'll, we'll have to see. So uh, the cool thing is there are tons of resources online. If you want to read all about NASA's plans about Mars, the, the incredibly thorough research that's been done to the feasibility of a manned Mars mission. There, there are huge documents online. We looked at several of them. There are more than 100 pages long for several of these that are very interesting, uh, extremely thorough. There are also uh, the Mars Direct Initiative has a great website where you can learn all about the proposed plan. Mars One has a website that uh, will either fill you with optimism or leave you scratching your head like like it does with with us. Uh, so uh, there's there's lots of stuff online where you can read more about this. Uh, but ultimately, I think um, I think when it comes down to it is the question of is it is it in fact a good idea to pursue the goal of sending people to Mars? Joe, what is your take? I wouldn't want to rush to it, especially not if you can't find a good way to make it safe uh, for multiple reasons. I mean, number one, obviously, you just don't want people dying on Mars or on right. the way to Mars. I mean, that's horrible. But even uh, apart from that tragedy in itself, I can see that being a blow to exploration in the future. Mm -hmm. um, if you have a tragedy on the first major mission to Mars, I, I can see public support for continued exploration being much lower. Sure. I mean, we, we saw that with previous tragedies in the space industry where things projects get get shelved uh, indefinitely, sometimes to the point where they're never brought back because uh, in the duration between the tragedy and when everything was given the all clear, it lost the support it needed to continue. Yeah. So I am very in favor of of sending people to Mars, but I think it's something that we need to be very sure we can do before we try to do it. Um, I, I'm not as, I, I guess maybe I'm not as bullish on this as I am about a lot of things on space exploration. Yeah. Uh, j just because of that problem, like the, the fact that we need to be very careful and, and the asteroid thing could actually teach us a lot there. Yes. I see. I think, um, I feel that it would be great to really pursue the goal of landing humans on Mars, uh, because the the benefits we stand to gain in advances in science and technology, as well as inspiring future generations to go into those fields, you know, various fields like engineering, science, whatever, uh, I think that would be incredibly beneficial to us as a whole. Even if we ultimately came to the decision that uh, we're we're putting off an actual manned mission to Mars because we just don't we don't have the the infrastructure in place to make it a safe. Uh, project, or at least within the, the acceptable levels of risk. Uh, I think that just having it as a goal for something to strive for will provide a lot of incentive to people to innovate in various ways. And so for me, I think it's incredibly important that we at least attempt to send people to Mars. Maybe, you know, maybe that actual, the actual pressing the button and launching the rocket into space 
that to me is actually less important than than having that goal there so that people have something that is all right i know what i want to achieve how is the best way to achieve it because that's what's going to specifically focus a lot of innovation and like i said we all stand to benefit from that in ways that we cannot anticipate it may be that the next commonplace technology that revolutionizes some aspect of consumer life comes from discoveries made in this project. Oh, that, yeah. that to me is, you know, that means that there's a real value to this that goes beyond, even if you don't care about science. If you, have, you just want a better panini press. I, I, it might come from Mars. It could. Uh, I will say that anyone listening to this, if they don't care about science, I don't know how they found the show. <laughs> because, uh, you must find it kind of boring. But. Yeah, you're like, uh, you know, I, I like to have a way of punishing my kids when they act up in the back of the car. So I'll turn you guys on. <laughs> but I mean, I think most of you guys are probably really into 20 minutes of photonics. <laughs> <laughs> I think most of you are really into, uh, into science and therefore, you are uh, you're probably of a similar mind. You might you might have even stronger opinions. You may be thinking, you know, we need to have the money on the table to send people up ASAP because X, Y, and Z. If you have those kind of opinions, if you have strong thoughts one way or the other, maybe you think manned space missions are ultimately not the way to go and you disagree with what Joe and I said. I really want to hear what your thoughts are. So you can share them with us on Facebook, Twitter, or on Google+. Our handle at all three of those locations is FWThinking. And we'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit ForwardThinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Are you spending more time in your basement now that it's your rec room, office, kids' playroom, or home gym? Well, you need to ventilate those spaces to remove stagnant, musty air. For over 20 years, the Easy Breathe ventilation system exchanges dirty, damp air for cleaner, drier, healthier air. Take charge of your indoor air with your own Easy Breathe ventilation system. You can get it installed, or DIY kits are available. Just call 866-822-7328 or visit TakeChargeOfYourAir.com and receive 20% off today. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. 
Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.